0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck
1: in a relationship
2: quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask
3: on the Savage Lovecast. Shortly after I moved to Seattle uh, many, many years ago, 25-ish years ago, I was uh, walking to meet some friends at a bar through kind of a sort of derelict, sort of strange uh, part of town, crossing over a freeway when I noticed this person was following me. And my gut instinct was, you're about to get robbed and you should run. And I didn't want to, I don't know, I didn't want to make the person who I thought might be following me feel like I thought they might be following me, so I didn't run. And then that person caught up to me, pulled a knife on me and demanded my wallet and my jacket. I had a leather jacket at the time that I like to wear that I got in Berlin that had tremendous sentimental value for me. Got in West Berlin when I moved there a few years before that. Um, And I took off running then and the person with the knife chased me and didn't overtake me. At one point they stumbled and dropped their knife and I made it into a bar, made it into the bar that I was running to. So they didn't cut my throat and take my jacket and my uh, wallet. And I had a regret. I regretted that that moment where I noticed this person following me. That I didn't take off running then. That I didn't react then. I didn't cross. This, I didn't do anything. You know, it was just too inhibited. And I didn't trust my gut. And I regretted that. There was another time where I was a teenager wandering through a warren of underground tunnels in Chicago. I was on my way to a science fiction convention that was in a hotel that was connected to these office towers that had these weird underground tunnels that during the day, during the week are full of people and little restaurants and, you know, Kinko's copy shops and just a a real crowd, you know, lots of people around. But on the weekend uh, when I was cutting through, it was deserted and I'm walking down a long hallway and I see somebody halfway down the hall in front of me and I think that's weird and that person is giving me a creepy look and I have a bad feeling I should probably turn around. I should probably not keep walking down this hallway. But I did keep walking down the hallway uh, in part because I didn't want to make that person feel like I thought there was something wrong with that person. And when I got to where that person was, that person grabbed me and pulled me into an alcove and uh, tried to put his hands down my pants and tried to uh, assault me. And this person was a lot larger than I was. And I got away and I ran away. And at that moment, I regretted not trusting my gut. I regretted walking down that hallway. There was another time I was in a bar. I was a young adult. I was drinking. Bars and drinks were new to me, which you will realize when I tell you what I was drinking. I was drinking Long Island iced teas with a friend also around my age. And somebody – people sent us a couple of drinks because we were young guys in a gay bar in Chicago on the north side. And my friend left and I had another drink. And then I realized I was really fucking drunk. I fell off the bar stool when I tried to stand up, which is when I realized I was really fucking drunk. I wish I could lie and say, I realized I was really fucking drunk and decided to leave. And then I fell off the bar stool. No, I fell off the bar stool and then realized, oh, I am really fucking drunk. Uh, Nearly incapacitated drunk as a teenager. I was 18 or 19 years old in a gay bar in Chicago in the early 80s. And I had gotten to that bar on my bike and I left. I left the bar. Completely shit faced, incapacitated teenager in a gay bar in Chicago in the early 80s when you know what was working its way through town and got on my bike and rode probably eight or nine miles home, completely shit faced drunk. And the next day I had regrets. I thought, wow, that was. And years later I had white hot panic regret. I was really vulnerable. I was really drunk. Somebody who is a shitty person could have taken advantage of me in a very serious way and very easily because I was so shit-faced. And then there was the regret of riding home on my bike in that condition. I fell off my bike also one or two times on that ride home. I could have fallen in front of a bus. I could have fallen and banged my head open. No helmets at that time. And I had regrets about that. So uh, the lesson I took away from that was I am not – you know I don't get that drunk in bars. I don't get that drunk and ride my bike and my the, the regret the you know the lessons i took from those other regrets are you know if i feel somebody's following me on the street i feel like i might get mugged i will go walk in the middle of the street i will take off running i will do whatever i'm not going to err on the side of getting stabbed to death uh, for my leather jacket and if i you know walking down a hallway and there's somebody giving me the creeps i will take another route even if it inconveniences me slightly because of that regret so i was thinking about those uh, three incidents the, the, those three moments of regret uh, after I saw this poster that some friends had uh, shared on Twitter uh, and were complaining about on Twitter that was uh, created in the UK. It's an anti-rape um, campaign that, it, that gives advice to women who may, who may be victimized by rapists and predators. And it's a purple poster. It's got a photograph, a couple of women dancing in a club. It looks like a Polaroid. Who uses those anymore? And the text of the poster reads, no regrets, big letters, Good night out. Make sure it stays that way. Alcohol can make you vulnerable to rape or sexual assault. Drink sensibly. Stay with your friends and book a licensed taxi home. The objection that I saw some people raising on Twitter was that uh, the poster frames rape as a regret of the victim. That, that, That a woman who's raped, that rape is a regret. That's her fault basically. She went out and got drunk and was raped and therefore the rape was her fault. The rape is her regret. And I don't read it like that. To me, this seems like good, solid advice. I was sexually assaulted in that hallway under that – under those office towers in Chicago when I was a teenager. Uh, I regretted not this, the, the – assault. it was unpleasant. It was horrible. My regret was not trusting my God. My regret was continuing to walk down that hallway even though that person gave me a very creepy feeling and I thought I should turn around and go the other way. And inconvenience myself and get back out on the street and not continue to walk down this hall. That was my regret, not listening to that little voice in my head, right? That does not absolve the person who assaulted me of his responsibility for his actions. It does not make me to blame for what he did to me in that moment. He is entirely to blame. Do I have a regret that's tied to that incident, to that experience? Yeah, I have a regret. I didn't listen to that little voice in my head that said, turn the fuck around. I had a regret when I was mugged in Seattle that I didn't – same little voice in my head saying, get the fuck out of here and I didn't get the fuck out of there and I should have. I had, you know, and that experience getting so shit faced drunk in that gay bar in Chicago when I was young, where I could have really been taken advantage of, and then riding my. I had regrets around that. I dodged bullets that night. I shouldn't have gotten that drunk. I made myself really vulnerable. And that was a mistake that I made. If somebody had taken advantage of me or sexually assaulted me that night or raped me that night, The crime is entirely on that person. That is their responsibility. Would I have regretted incapacitating myself? Yeah, I would have regretted that. It's difficult to talk about because you end up – the limits of the English language, you end up in this place where you can't avoid saying this. I would have regretted aiding the person who preyed on me. I would have regretted – My part in this, right, because I made this choice to get this drunk or it was an accident that I got that drunk. I didn't know my limits then. I didn't know how to drink responsibly, even to drink, you know, immoderately responsibly because sometimes even still today I will tear it up, right? Not like I did then. We live in a world full of predators and assholes. There are rapists and shitbags out there who are laying in wait to take advantage. We should all be able to wear whatever we want, go wherever we want. Walk down any street we want to, drink however much we want to, whenever we want to, with whomever we care to, without being preyed upon. But we know that there are times and places where people are laying in wait to take advantage, people who are incapacitated or vulnerable. We need to look out for each other. We need to look out for our friends. And we need to be smart about when and where and how we drink and how we get home and who we're with. To protect ourselves. And we have to be careful when we look at posters like this, we create posters like this, that we don't read them as, oh, look how much you had to drink. Of course, this happened. You are to blame. Just like we don't say and shouldn't say, look what you were wearing. Of course, this happened. You are to blame. We should look at how much we're drinking and be able to say, you know what? I don't want to give an assist to someone who may want to rape me or assault me. I don't want to make that easier for them. So I am going to stay with my friends. I am going to know what my limit is. If I do get in my cups, I am going to be with people who know enough not to leave me alone, who will look out for me. And I will look out for them in turn when they're in their cups. That is not taking the blame. That is not absolving the rapist of their culpability. That is not, look how much you had to drink. Of course this happened, you are to blame. That is, I am cognizant of how much I am drinking and how much my friends are drinking because I don't want to make it easier for the shitbags and the rapists to do their shitty, rapey things. Anyway, regrets. I've had a few. I may even regret this rambly opening conversation today. And now your calls.
4: Hi, Dan. Uh, My name is Alex, and I recently came out to my parents as bisexual. I'd come out to them... Before when I was like 12 and went through two counts of conversion therapy, things like that. I felt like it was causing like a really big disconnect in my ability to talk to my parents because I was always afraid I was going to say the wrong thing. So I decided after listening to your podcast, it was really strange because I kept clicking on random ones and each one was about someone coming out to their parents either during the holidays, something like that. So I kind of gathered up the courage and told them last night, and it didn't go as well as I thought it would. Um, It went basically the same, because it was the last time, but this time I'm an adult. And they kind of said, they'll never accept this sinful part of me, because they're conservative Christians. They'll never accept this sinful part of me, and that whatever happens, they don't want to be a part of it. And so if I get a boyfriend or a husband, they don't want to meet him And he's never welcome around their house and things like that. And if we have a kid, they said they didn't want to be involved in that kid's life. And it was just really stressful for me to hear. And But then they said, we love you, though. But we're not turning our backs on you. We love you, but we just can't accept this part. And it was this really weird median between being disowned and being completely accepted. And it's just kind of this indifference that they want to ignore. And I'm not sure really um, what to do about that. And so I tried to explain to them that I'm about, like, a four on the Kinsey scale and bisexual, and they just weren't understanding. And so how would you advise me to kind of react to them? I feel like I'm overreacting if I kind of, like, cut them off because they said they still want to have a relationship with me. So, But I can't go back into the closet every time I see them.
3: I feel like I should begin my response to you by saying that you're not really bi and there's no such thing and bisexuals don't exist. Uh, just to please all the people out there who are constantly insisting that I am biphobic and that I deny the existence of bi guys when, if you read my column and listen to the show, constantly hearing from bi people who've been helped by my advice, helped uh, aided in their coming out processes, helped uh, reconcile themselves to the fact that they are bisexual. Uh, but whatever. Uh, you exist. There you are. And you called my show. And I'm glad that you've been listening. And I'm glad it helped. Uh, your parents have made their move Now you make yours. I mean, you made the first move. Mom, dad, I'm gay. What you did to me when I was 12, huh, shitty and child abuse and now banned in Washington, D.C. as of this week, conversion therapy for children. So what your parents did to you this week, also New Jersey, California, being banned in New Jersey, banned in California, increasingly recognized all across the country that what your parents did to you when you were 12 and you first tried to come out to them is child abuse. If some adult self-hating idiot wants to... Enroll themselves in conversion therapy and waste their time. They're free to do that, but you're no longer allowed in Washington D.C., California. Hopefully, soon in New Jersey, to do that to a child because you are an idiotic bigot. So you made your move, mom, dad, bye. They made theirs. We hate this sinful part of you. We want nothing to do with it. Blah blah blah. We'll never meet a, a, a man if you marry a man. You sound like you perhaps are a homo romantic bisexual. Bisexual but homoromantic, sounds great. They'll never meet a husband. If you ever have kids, they want nothing to do with their grandchild. Now it's time for you to make your counter move. You can't have a relationship with me that excludes the people that I am in relationship with because they are a part of who I am, a part of my life. You can't be in relationship with just the chunk of me that you approve of. So see ya, bye. Give them a year or two to stew in their own hatred. Your, If you've listened, you've heard me say this a million times. Your leverage over your adult parents, once you are an adult, is your presence in their lives. If they are being shitty, don't be present. That is your only leverage. You make yourself not present. You make them fear your rejection. And the quickest way to do that is make them live with it for a while. So go out there and as Armistead Malpin would say, find your logical family, your biological family, kind of failing right now, Go find your logical family, the people who love and support you for who you are, and make that a condition for your biological family, a condition of seeing you again, of your being present in their lives. They must love you and accept you for who you are and not just for the chunks of you that their crazy fictional sky god approves of. One other aspect of my advice, though, is always to give your parents a year to have their tantrum, a year to have their out, to not bring the boyfriend or girlfriend around for a year, to let them say idiotic, shitty, hurtful things, ask insulting questions, and not hold any of that against them after that year is up if they drop it. So go home this Christmas. Give them this year. Tell them that's what you're doing. You know, you won't have to see any boyfriends. I'm not going to have any children in the next 12 months. But you have a year to work through this. You have a year to – Broaden your minds. Direct them to Matthew Vine's uh, YouTube video about being a gay Christian, what the Bible actually says about gay people, and give them a copy of Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian, the biblical case in support of same-sex relationships. Tell them to read it. Tell them it's not a boyfriend that they have to look at and have mental images of you sucking off. It's just a book that they have to read that's about Christianity that accepts as its – at its premise, accepts – That Jesus exists and God exists and Christianity is the one true religion, right? So it's right there in their corner. At the very least, as a price to see you over the next 12 months, they've got to read this fucking book. And if they can never love and accept you, you might want to read Aaron Hartzler's piece, a piece he wrote for Salon called Honey, We're Praying for You. It's about how he manages his relationship with his fundamentalist Christian parents who refuse to accept his homosexuality or his brother's homosexuality, refuse to go to either of their weddings how he manages to still love his parents, even though he is not present in the lives of his parents. Might be a good piece for you to read. Aaron Hartzler, Salon, Matthew Vines, God and the Gay Christian. Give him a year, but that's it.
2: Hi, Dan. I'm a teacher in a Northeast city. I teach high school and, uh, I had a female student uh, put her hand down her pants and appeared to be masturbating in class. Other students got wind of it and, uh, I just paralyzed. I had no idea what to do. So what would you do in that situation? Um, I ended up, uh, talking to the nurse, having the nurse call the student down and chat a little bit. But, um, I don't think it was like an empowered kid. I think like the kid didn't really know what was going on, but I don't know. It was really uncomfortable for the other students. And I want to be, you know, in a situation where I don't shame the kid and make sure that I also like take care of all my students. So any suggestions? Thanks.
3: There's a difference between coming down hard on someone to communicate to them appropriate boundaries and what behaviors are permissible in public and, and and which behaviors are not permissible in public and shaming them. This isn't something that you want to gloss over because you want to be so delicate and careful not to make this young woman feel ashamed of her sexuality or her genitals. uh, Because if she continues to masturbate in public in class, if this is something that she hasn't figured out for herself, perhaps she's a little slow on the uptake. Perhaps she comes from, very damaged family. Perhaps she has been sexually abused. If she doesn't figure this out on her own, it will be social death for her and career death for her and further education death for her if this isn't cut off at the pass. So you do need to come down on her and the school needs to come down on her and you need to do it in a way – you need to do it away from her peers because you don't want to sick everyone on her. You don't want to embarrass and humiliate her in front of her peers, but you want to remove her from that room full of her peers to have a really firm, direct conversation with her about uh, what she's doing. It sounds like you did the right thing. You called the nurse. You had the nurse pull her out. You had the nurse talk to her. You should talk to the nurse about what was said and it should be reinforced. And perhaps there should be a meeting or two with her going forward to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Because someone who would do that in high school, someone who would begin to masturbate in the back of class in high school, someone who already all by themselves couldn't figure out that that was not appropriate, that person is going to need that message probably delivered to them more than once and emphasized to them again and again for it to sink in. Because that's the kind of message most of us have gotten in the ether without anyone having to say it to us aloud. So you did the right thing, call in the nurse, meet with the nurse, talk to the nurse about what you talked about, and you guys should meet with her one or two more times to have a couple more conversations about it and then be done. If it never happens again, Yahtzee. And if it continues to happen, continue to push back and push back hard for her own sake. And that's not shaming. That's teaching.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm a straight woman in my late 30s. I've been married for 17 years. And my problem is I have a crush on a married man that I work with, and nothing inappropriate has ever happened. And obviously, for a lot of reasons, it would be a bad idea to let him know how I feel. So my question is not whether to let him know how I feel. I guess my question is, how do I get over a crush? I've worked with this guy for a few years. After a couple years of working with him, I moved to a different department taking, you know, this is... Maybe just getting a little distance would be good, and uh, now instead of seeing him on a daily basis, I just see him occasionally. And I feel so silly. I feel like a teenager, and honestly, I I would like to just get over this and and not have it be something that keeps coming up for me. So I guess my question is for you or for your caller, do you have any advice on how to get over a crush?
3: The only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. I can resist everything but temptation. Oscar Wilde said that. Uh, Terrible advice for you in your situation considering that you are married and presumably default monogamous and this man is married and presumably default monogamous. But here you've been crushed out on him for two or three years and it isn't going away. So what can you do? Well, as anyone who's in a long-term relationship, most people in long-term relationships would – Tell you, most married people would tell you the quickest way to get over a crush is to date, fuck, and marry that person. But you've already dated and fucked and married someone, and so is he, and so you're done, and you're default monogamous, so you can't ever act on this. I would advise you just to let it continue to play. Like, what can you do? I can't reach into your head and pull the crush out. I can't tear that wiring up. You are attracted to this guy, and you would like to fuck him, and you can't. And you know, set a child in front of a box of cookies and tell them. They can have anything in the room except the cookies in that box. And they're going to want those cookies and no others. So my advice to you would be to masturbate about him a lot. My advice to you would be to think about him while you're having sex with your husband my advice to you would be to take that sexual energy home to enjoy it, to stop regarding it as something hugely problematic or some sort of betrayal. It's not a betrayal of your husband that you're attracted to somebody else. It's a betrayal of your husband. If you've made a monogamous commitment, if you acted on that attraction, it's not a a betrayal to take that sexual energy home to enjoy it, to even savor your attraction to this guy and then take that sexual charge home and plow it into your husband and to close your eyes and think of that other guy and fuck him in your head. And really, what other choice do you have? Really, there's nothing else you can do. You can ride the wave of this attraction. You can enjoy the fruits of it that you are allowed, which are only the imaginary ones. And you might as well enjoy them. You might as well enjoy some masturbatory fantasies. You might as well enjoy turning the lights off and letting your husband go down on you while you think about that guy, because you ought to get something out of this. All you're getting out of this right now is stress and grief. And anxiety, you might as well get a few fucking orgasms out of it. Maybe those orgasms will help you get this a little bit more out of your system. And in time, this crush, as all crushes, consummated or not, will fade.
2: Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-something straight guy. Uh, I'm currently enjoying being single. Uh, the issue I'm having is that I'm having trouble uh, getting or staying hard with new partners. Uh, it's clearly not a health issue. I'm in good shape. I have normal uh, blood pressure. I'm not diabetic uh, and I'm not taking any of the usual suspects, uh, which my understanding is are congestions or antidepressants. Further, I'll occasionally hook up with old friends or exes and things are great, clearly all in my head. I don't know when this first started, uh, but in the last three years or so, I'd say it's happened half the time I go home with someone new. Uh, and you know, it totally seems to be more of a problem uh, the more I'm attracted to somebody. Uh, this other person, I can diffuse things in the short term, either with me going down on her or some other kind of fun, uh, but it's still extremely stressful and embarrassing. Ideally, I'd like to get out of my own head and not have this happen anymore. Uh, Where do I start?
3: The reason this isn't a problem for you when you hook up with old friends or exes is there's nothing at stake, right? They already know you well enough and you've you've hooked up with them before. They know your dick works. They believe in your dick. They're clapping for Tinkerbell. There's Tinkerbell. It's more of a problem with new women uh, because some part of your brain is going, they don't know that my dick works. And you begin to doubt. You begin to worry that if your dick doesn't work, what will she think? And it's even more of a problem with women that you are particularly attracted to sexually or emotionally or both. Because there's a lot at stake. That's very consequential. Like, Here's a woman you'd like to be with and if your dick doesn't work, oh my god, she might not want to be with you. You can try pills, right? You can get some Viagra and for a lot of people, Viagra physiologically actually really helps them but also psychologically it can help them. Performance anxiety is entirely psychological. A placebo effect can kick in when you take the Viagra. You think I'm not going to have a problem with my dick, and then, ta-da, you don't have a problem with your dick, even if the drug didn't actually work in the way that pharmacologically it's, it's intended to or supposed to work on you. It just, like, gave you that Tinkerbell moment. You could believe in your dick again, right? You clapped and there and your dick was. That's one option. The other option is just to say what you said to us to new women that you hook up with that you're particularly attracted to. My dick is awesome. My dick is great. My dick works fine. My dick never really works, though, the first time I hook up with somebody that I'm really attracted to. So you can read, you know, I didn't get hard as I must not like you, which a lot of women would read that as. Or you can read that as I really like you. So here's the deal. The first time we hook up, maybe the first couple times we hook up, it's going to be about me pleasuring you. And we're just not going to worry about my dick. And then who knows, your dick, once the pressure is off, once you there's no longer like, this pressure to perform, to make with the erection, your dick might show the fuck up. But if it doesn't and she's in bed with you, she signed up for that. She signed up for mutual masturbation and rolling around and you going down on her and it being a not dick-centered first sexual encounter. And proving to someone you can have not dick-centered sex and enjoy it and be good at it and it can be really fulfilling for them – is not a bad place to start a sexual relationship. It really isn't. There's way too much focus on just the dick and the fucking in straight sex. You can turn this to your advantage with a little bit of honesty and no shame. This is not anything you have to be ashamed of. This is how your dick works. And you should be honest about it and you should make it seem not maybe not ideal. You would rather have a hard dick all the time when you have sex, but certainly something that the workaround is going to be great. The workaround is going to be... Fun and pleasurable and awesome, and I'm going to get you off. And next time we hook up, I'm going to fuck you to death.
6: Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20-year-old living in a large city in the West. My boyfriend and I have been dating for about three months now We have, have been, and have been having sex since then. The relationship is great. We are extremely compatible in so many ways. I think sex is one of the only issues. It's not that it's bad. I love having sex with him. But in the three months that we have been dating, he has not made me orgasm, and I haven't told him that I have not However, I haven't picked it either. I don't know if he doesn't realize what a female orgasm looks like, although it's different for every woman. I've tried telling him what I like in bed, including lots of foreplay, but he has definitely tried to do more. I also have suggested bringing a vibrator into the bedroom to spice up. We're still having some pretty vanilla sex, but he doesn't want the vibrator to be doing what he has claimed is his job. Obviously, he doesn't realize... But he also isn't doing his job. How do I tell him that I haven't orgasmed since he's been having sex without hurting his feelings? And how do I take the pressure off me to orgasm every time or whenever he tries after I do tell him that I haven't orgasmed yet?
3: You're young. You're only three months into this relationship. It's wonderful that you are very compatible in every other way, please listen to the other calls on the show that come in so often from people who stayed in a relationship in which uh, with someone that they were not compatible with sexually and how much misery that generates. You are doing the right thing. You're three months in and you are starting to work on establishing sexual compatibility and you need to regard that as a condition of going forward in this relationship. If you cannot establish sexual compatibility, if this person cannot fulfill you sexually, You cannot stay in this relationship and you will have to pull the plug regardless of how well you get along in every other arena because sex is important, particularly in those sexually exclusive relationships that I am a big supporter of in theory. Now, you've tried telling him what you like in bed. You've tried telling him to bring in a vibrator. You're worried about hurting his feelings. Let's think about your feelings. You're being masturbated in. By someone who doesn't really give a shit or doesn't know to give a shit or doesn't know how to tell the difference between a woman who's had an orgasm and a woman who hasn't and doesn't realize that a shit giving is required of him and your feelings are going to be hurt. He's already hurt your feelings by deflecting what I imagine were very sort of subtle, deferential, hand-ringy, cringey, the way women are socialized to defer to men and always worry about men's feelings first, efforts on your part to bring that vibrator in. Wouldn't it be fun if we, like, tried a vibrator? No, no, that wouldn't be fun. Oh, okay. No, bullshit. We are bringing a vibrator in. That is what I require to climax. I have not been orgasming. I don't know if you noticed or not, but I don't come when we have sex. I enjoy it. And not all women need to come every time they have sex, and it's terrible when women are pressured to come every time they have sex. But I haven't come at all. And that's over. I'm not going to be intimate with you anymore unless we begin to prioritize my orgasms, which I am capable of having. And then you duct tape him to a chair and you masturbate with your vibrator in front of him and make him watch what it looks like when you come. The duct taping to the chair is entirely optional. But make him watch what it looks like when you come. Use the vibrator on yourself in front of him so that he now knows what you look like when you climax and he can no longer tell himself that the pleasure faces, that you're enjoying it, the physical sensation, sort of rolling enjoyment of intercourse with him is an orgasm for you because it ain't. And you need to be firm and clear. And if he gets his feelings hurt, good. He may need his feelings hurt. And you need to look at his neglect of your pleasure, whether it was conscious or subconscious, benign or malicious, as your feelings being hurt, you need to stand up for yourself, stand up for your feelings, advocate for yourself, advocate for your own pleasure. He's certainly advocating for his. If you guys had been having sex for three months and he had not come once, you don't think he would talk to you about that? You don't think he would have a problem with that? You don't think that he would demand that whatever it was that he required to come was in the room, that that shit wouldn't be in the room five minutes later? He would. He would. Absolutely. Guys, if they need a canoe and a goat in the room to come, there will be a canoe and the goat in the room the first time you are in their room. You will arrive in the room with the canoe and the goat already there. If you require a vibrator to be incorporated into intercourse for you to come, caller, ladies, have it in the room when he gets there. It is a non-negotiable. And if he says, oh, I'm the, aren't I enough to make you come? Shouldn't I be the one who makes you come? He's like, yeah, you should be the one who makes me come. Here, you hold the vibrator. Make me come. It is a tool. Here's a hammer. Drive the nail. You still built the fucking house. But do this now. Lay this all on the line now. Stop worrying about his feelings and worry about your feelings. Just think about that. If he hadn't come once in three months with you, you don't think he'd be very direct about his dissatisfaction his displeasure you don't think he'd be advocating for his pleasure very very aggressively after three months of you coming without him having ever blown a load not a single one you don't think he'd be in your face about that of course he'd be in your face about that and you should be in his face about this so duct tape chair vibrator tonight
7: hi dan I know that it's super common for bisexuals
8: to feel more emotionally or physically drawn to one gender versus the other, but I feel that my situation differs. I'm a 26-year-old female who identifies as bisexual, but have always struggled with the fact that since childhood, I've been intensely and exclusively sexually attracted to women and in the same vein, intensely and exclusively romantically and emotionally attracted to men. I like women sexually and men emotionally, and there is no overlap. I've been sexually active as a bisexual for quite some time and have done a lot of sexual soothing to try and figure this out. I was raised in a sex positive environment and I've been watching a ton of porn since I was around 15, all lesbian. I can't watch any porn involving men. Even if he's filming and speaks during the shoot, I'm immediately turned off. Also, I've only ever liked lesbian porn when it's unemotional. Little to no kissing, more than two women, orgies for instance are ideal. The less romantic the better. But I do like sleeping with men, I know and or love, because I enjoy the emotional connection on a deep level. I love sex with men, but not in the same way at all. I see myself married to a man. I would love to be married to a man. I tend to get into long-term, emotionally charged romantic relationships with men and one-night-stand type encounters with women, not simultaneously. I hate the thought of being with a woman long-term. I do have amazing, quote-unquote, primal sexual experiences with women, but feel absolutely no romantic connection at all. I've tried romantically dating women to my unhappy, writhing doom. I love cuddling with men. I am not into female cuddling at all. The thought of kissing a girl turns me off so much, whereas I could make out with a cute fella for days. I can't imagine what it would be like to be turned on sexually by a penis. And in the same way, I can't imagine what it would be like to be romantically interested in women. I'm undeniably into pussy, and at the same time, undeniably into being romantic with boys. If given a choice, I would have a romantic, less sexual relationship with a man over a romanceless, sexual relationship with a woman. And this is what I'm currently up to, a romantic relationship with a man. I feel like I'm stuck. How do I get unstuck?
3: You said it a a million different ways, but I just want to make sure I understand what the issue is. You are romantically attracted to men— but not yes. that – you can have sex with men and enjoy sex with men, but you're not really that into it. You don't really like penises. Yeah. You you like penises?
7: I like them in the way that I'm emotionally turned on by that whole idea.
3: So you like what the penis is attached to.
7: Exactly. And I love, for instance, pleasuring my boyfriend because I know that he's, you know, enjoying it immensely and that gives me huge emotional pleasure. Okay. so
3: But you're not repulsed by penises. You don't want to run screaming.
7: No, clearly. no, 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 no. No,
3: no, no. And you are not at all romantically attracted to women, but you, you, your preferred sex. You know, if you were like not in a relationship and someone said, you can have sex right now, yeah. however you wanted it, it would be this no kissing, practically anonymous, rough lesbian orgy. That would be your idea. Exactly. And so yeah. the problem is what? The
7: problem is that I'm with a guy right now who I, I love so, so, so much. I'm hugely emotionally into like I said, I like having sex with him to the degree that, um, you know, I get huge emotional um, satisfaction from it. And, you know, I'm romantically into him. The whole thing gives me, you know, goosebumps. and I'm, I'm still, waiting you know, still waiting for the but problem. Still waiting for the problem, bracing myself. But the sexual, for, for me to, you know, for me to come while we're having sex, I need to be watching lesbian porn or I need to have that in my mind. Um, and, you know, the great thing about it is that he's super GGG and he's been really... You know, we've talked about this a ton, and he's, you know, he's open to having threesomes in the future with me and other girls if, you know, if we need to do that. Um, because, you know, long term, we want to be married. I'm just kind of concerned that maybe, you know, right now it seems okay to just be picturing women sometimes when I'm fucking him. And, uh, you know, when we're married and 10 years down the road, maybe maybe I just need to figure out shit before I, I commit to something like that. And it's kind of preemptive. Like, we're not engaged at this point. I'm right. just...
3: It's a good idea generally to figure your shit out before you make a lifetime, presumably lifetime commitment to another human being. Uh, Is he okay with you, you know, in theory, maybe getting together every once in a while with a a woman or a group of women without him there?
7: I don't think he would be.
3: Mm
7: -hmm. Um, That said, I haven't talked to him about it.
3: At least now, he wouldn't be comfortable with that.
7: No. Possibly in the future. And the thing for me is that, I mean, of course, I'm all for figuring my shit out before I, am, you know, insert myself into a long-term commitment. That's hugely important. But I've been messing around with this and thinking about it and researching it like crazy for the past while. Um, And I've been, you know, feeling this way since I was young, like eight years old. I remember I've been like masturbating, thinking about women, fantasizing about women. But then the whole fairy tale thing with a man, for instance, with movies and stuff, I've always been incredibly emotionally turned on by that.
3: Do you know what I mean? Have you ever been in a relationship with a woman? Have you ever had sex with a woman? Well,
7: that's the thing. I've, I've had sex with many, many women, but I can't get past the, like, I, my, my first sexual encounter with a woman, I was 16. She was my best friend. Um, and, you know, we'd have, like, casual sex um but and she was she's a lesbian and still is and she dates women exclusively and is in a long-term relationship with a woman and she always wanted to kind of date and i was never into that because i'm not okay, well, there, never really been into women emotionally
3: there's a parade of syllables for you we 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 have a term or uh two terms that put together are you which is bisexual right. and heteroamorous that you are sexually attracted to both and you may even have a preference that's stronger for one or the other. And you are only romantically attracted to the one. Now, why are some people who are bisexual heteroamorous and heterosexually so? Well, some people would look at that and say, you know, you just had such a deep groove carved into you by the culture, by those romantic comedies you just cited that the, you know, the heteronormative pressure and the heterosexual expectation right. just sort of scripted you in this way It wrote out the possibility of you being able to romantically respond to women. Or maybe you're just more emotionally attracted to men and that's fine and we don't have to pathologize it. However you got there, it's where you are and that's fine. So long as you don't have to not be who you are in this relationship, so long as you don't have to be in denial about it, I don't think there's anything Mm -hmm. wrong and I don't think you're broken in any way. I don't Mm -hmm. think there's actually a problem. And a lot of people, not just people in your particular circumstance, a lot of people to enjoy sex to get off have to run some tape in their head at some point during the encounter. Right. Have to like think through or play the little video of the fantasy, whatever it might be, that kicks the brain, you know, the biggest sex organ that you have, your brain Mm -hmm. pushes it over the edge, right? That you're with your partner and there's not, you know, maybe that's not ideal. We'd rather be in the moment with our partner and responding to them 100%, but it's not uncommon for people to be in your situation. Sometimes with fantasies that are a lot I think more problematic and and perhaps troubling to individuals. Some people have to go to a really dark place.
7: Yes, yeah.
3: And you're just going to a really dyke place, and I don't think that's as scary, yeah, or as problematic, particularly if you can vocalize it and verbalize it. Yeah. With this guy and how much more are you going to love him that to be with him means you don't have to pretend this part of your sexuality doesn't exist or deny it, that you're able to incorporate it into your sexual relationship with him to the degree of watching porn, to the degree of speaking of it, dirty talking about it while you're fucking him. And, and at some point down the road being with a woman, like you win, you win, you won the boyfriend lottery. Cool. So this is a
7: fairly common issue that you run into with the, romantically into
3: one gender and sexually into the other exclusively. Yes, but usually with bisexual heteroamorous, somebody is into both sexes, only romantically attracted to one, and they either enjoy sex with both equally or they enjoy sex with the, you know, the, the, the gender that they're more attracted to emotionally, sexually as well. That it's, there's not this little disconnect or conflict that there is in the way bisexual heteroamorous is being expressed by, your junk. Yeah. But what's being expressed by your junk isn't irreconcilable. It isn't something you can't work with or roll with or really yeah. enjoy. It R-
7: really makes sense what you just said about, um you know, some people have to fantasize about way crazier shit to get off and they make their relationships work through communication and maybe doing that when they need to. And I totally get that. And it makes sense that I, I feel lucky that I, maybe that I don't have to go to that extent, right?
3: You don't have to go to that extent, but a lot of people aren't as fortunate as you are in that they whatever it is that they have to fantasize about, they can't share with their partner, or their partner would feel very threatened by, or it would be so dark and disturbing that their partner wouldn't be able to be intimate with them anymore if they knew about this dark place that this person goes to just in their imaginations. And everything is fine if it's in your imagination, everything's permissible, right? And you're able to you're able to use this thing of yours, this this you know disconnect, your heterosexual, yeah. you know you're hetero bisexual shit and you were able to make it feel for your fire with the guy that you're romantically involved with and sexually into
7: yeah but that's very true and another good thing about it a really bright side is that i mean he's heterosexual and i'm sure he loves the idea and I know he <laughs> i'm does, sure he having does having sex with me and a woman that i'm into and watching that in general
3: so. one last follow-up question before i let you go how old are you
7: I'm 25. Okay, about turn 26.
3: All right. If you were 19, I might have some different advice for you around that you couldn't picture <laughs> yeah. yourself in a romantic relationship with a same-sex partner, because the homophobia, the internalized homophobia that gets pounded into people, can sometimes be so yeah. paralyzing that you know people engage in this tragical thinking.
7: Right, where they convince yeah.
3: themselves they're not you know, they're into same sex sex but they could never romant- be romantically involved, so they're not as bad as homosexuals.
7: Totally. Yeah, totally. I know that's not me. I've been raised in a really sex positive environment with relatives who are gay and it's always been a very
6: positive
3: Okay. So I would I would only challenge you on stay open to the fe- stay open to the possibility you could be in a same sex relationship if you were younger, if you if you right. knew yourself less well. Because you okay. exist. Your type exists. And Yeah. You know, when we when I got you on the phone, my first question is, what's the problem? And you know what? Here we are at the end of the call. There really is no problem. There's nothing yeah. wrong with you.
7: <laughs> well, let me tell you, it really helps to hear you saying that. <laughs> now I'm like, yeah, there is no problem. It only
3: becomes a problem if this relationship fails and you wind up in a relationship with someone else where you can't be who you are sexually right. and in the moment with your partner, your male partner, about who you really are sexually. So long as you have a male yeah. partner who isn't threatened by it, who loves it, who celebrates it... Who who values it? Who thinks it's awesome and 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 sees the benefit for him in it? You you win, you win. Not a problem. Actually, yeah. superpower.
7: Cool, cool. You've freed me. <laughs> so amazing. Thank you.
3: All in a day's work. Good luck.
5: Thank you. Hi Dan. Um, I'm a early 30s by girl from the East Coast. My husband and I we've been married for going on eight years now, and you know we've had we've had our struggles. We've both had issues with infidelity we've been separated for about six months last year and um, reconciled and we're, you know, very happy to like choose each other again. And that was great. We've had a lot of conversations about open relationships and, you know, the idea that of a hall pass and, you know, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world and it may be good for both of us. And, um, you know, we've sort of played with other couples, things like that. But recently he started really dating two different women and it's, much, much harder than I ever thought it would be. It's much more intense and much more time consuming than I was expecting. Um, To make matters worse, he just started a new job and his schedule is really crazy and we don't really see each other very much. And so I think that may be one of the issues that I'm having. He said that he would stop if I wanted him to, but I don't really want, I don't like being in that position. I don't like being the one to say, yeah, like I can't handle this and because I know it makes him happy, you know, he's much more extroverted than I am. That's always sort of been an issue for us. He likes to go out and have fun. But it's just really, really hard and, you know, I love him so much and I want to be with him for the rest of my life. And this is definitely a price of admission I'm willing to pay. I was just hoping that maybe I could get some advice from you on the best way to handle it and sort of, you know, over it up and, and deal with my feelings and sort of jealousy and maybe fear that this could be an answer marriage for good. We've had a lot of conversations about it. I think I have kind of burned him out on talking about it for a while and I've been really, really emotional and it's been hard for me to even enjoy the time that we've had together. So if I could just get your advice, I would I would very, very much appreciate it.
3: You need to take your husband up on his offer to stop seeing these other women. Listen to your voice. The pain that comes across while you talk about this is palpable, heartbreaking, troubling, if I were your husband and my behavior was making you feel that way, I would be anxious to stop it. If I tried to stop it and you told me not to stop it, whatever it was, I would ignore you and insist on stopping it because I wouldn't want to continue to hurt you that way. You know, when when people talk about opening up, opening up their relationships, it's easy to understand what a monogamous relationship is. There's just one definite – a monogamous relationship, here are two people who only have sex with each other. Period. The end. It's very simple. A non monogamous relationship or an open relationship, there are a million different ways to be open. You can be wide fucking open. Anything goes. There are no rules. Neither of you can impose anything on each other. There's open a crack. There is, you know, open when you're in a different time zone. There is degrees of openness. And it, what it sounds like is going on here is you've agreed to an open relationship, but the kind of open relationship you are in is making you miserable. You can still have an open relationship. You say that you've cheated in the past. He's cheated in the past. You've both looked at each other now and recognized that monogamy, you can't do it. The monogamous model fails you. You don't fail it. It doesn't work for you and you're going to do something else. But you're you're jumping in now to sort of varsity-level polyamory where your husband is out there dating other women, not just having sex with other women but becoming emotionally involved with other women and that is hard for you. That's not just sex with other people. That's a relationship with someone else and that's a relationship with two someone else's in this case and the new job on your husband's part that's depriving you of his attention, his company, his affection, of intimacy, probably of sex as well. That openness doesn't work for you. That openness makes you miserable. So you need to renegotiate – you need to close the door I think for a while. You guys need to – decide if you are each other's primary partners and what that means and what your responsibilities are to each other and the kind of openness that you're going to have in your marriage has to be healthy and productive. And it has to make both of you happier than the monogamous model, which failed you guys made you. And it's not, it's making you miserable and it's fine that he's more extroverted and It's fine that you're more introverted. You know, a lot of guys in open relationships have a harder time finding female partners, male, heterosexual, married men, finding female partners who are down with the openness thing. And, you know, I hear from a lot of husbands whose wives are running around and dating a million guys while they sit at home alone. And I tell them the same thing I'm telling you. Not fair. You have to close it up for a little while. and roll it back out much more gradually and carefully and, and, and with much more consideration for each other's feelings. Cause if he just rattles around out there fucking and dating other women and you're sitting at home miserable and alone with your voice cracking while you call the fag with the sex advice podcast, the marriage is going to end. Is that what he wants? It'll destroy the marriage. It'll, it'll poison the relationship, poison the well. It'll be over. If that is not what he wants, then this kind of openness, the kind of openness you guys are practicing now, is not the openness that he wants. It's clearly not the kind of openness that you want, this openness that is bundled with isolation and neglect. You put each other first: first priority: primary partners, some allowance for outside sexual contact and ongoing outside sexual contact. It is better to have ongoing relationships with other people than to just bang them a hundred thousand randoms over the course of your marriage. But his relationships with other women can't come at the expense of your sense of primacy, your mental health, your sexual needs, your emotions. And right now, it's coming at the expense of all of those things. He offered to close. He offered to end these relationships with these other women. Take him up on that offer. There are tons of sex researchers and sociologists and psychologists out there trying to figure out what is up with human sexuality. They do tons of interesting work. churn up tons of interesting data. And every once in a while, we like to invite one of them onto the show for a little segment that we call What What You Got. Joining us today for What You Got, Dr. Jeff Temple, a licensed psychologist and associate professor at the University of Texas Medical Branch. And Dr. Temple, you just did a study about teen sexting. Is that right?
0: Yes we did and thank you for having me on Dan. You're welcome. So we, uh, a couple of years ago we did one of the first studies on sexting and what we found was that teens who had sexted probably not too surprisingly were more likely to have actually participated in sex and one of the questions I got when I, when we first released that study was, well, what came first, you know, the chicken or the egg phenomenon? Were these
3: teenagers interested in sex, so they were sexting, or did sexting, which they were somehow were doing without being interested in sex, sort of made them interested in sex and then they were <laughs> sexting?
0: Exactly. And I, th- I think I could actually make a case for either way, right? So if you sext someone, it might increase their advancements, which then may increase the likelihood of having sex, or it might signal to the other person that you're ready to take it to the next level. Or if you have sex, then it might increase or escalate the level of flirtation that no longer is a message okay. Now you kind of want to see more, and uh, and you're probably more okay with showing them your body. So we really didn't know which came first. And so this most recent study that was published in Pediatrics, we actually actually looked at it over time, and what we found that is that teens who sexted were more likely to uh, have sex over the next year than teens who did not sext.
3: But, you know, teens who's sexed are interested in sex. They're self, You know, they're self-selecting. They're, of course, they're interested in sex. They're sexting. So, of course, they're likely to have sex. Isn't that obvious?
0: It, it absolutely is obvious. But I think what this said is that we can say that sexting, at least in some cases, comes first,
3: mm-hmm. which
0: is, a, I, I think, a good uh, point for prevention, that if we know that sexting comes first and we find that a – teen is sexting, well, then we can intervene and talk about safe sex and hopefully prevent risky sexual behavior.
3: But what, you know, there's a lot of panic out there in the culture about uh, teenagers and sexting. Uh, Is the takeaway, unfortunately, you know, from the headlines version of, uh, of, you know, newspaper summaries of your report going to be if you can just get your kids not to sext, then they won't have sex. That if you can slap the phones out of their hands, you can prevent your kid from being sexual.
0: I hope not. I, you know, I think that that is going to be some of the reactions, but I've cautioned quite a bit against that. You know, kids are, uh, teens are going to have sex and they're going to sext. Uh, I, I think more than anything, what I would like this study to to do is to get people to talking to teens about sex, and maybe this opens up a conversation with your teenager about safe sex and. Uh, healthy relationships and mm-hmm. how to treat your partner, sexual partner, or just relationship partners. So that's what I would like it to do. Uh, I think there is a little bit of this, this panic. And one of the things that was, that's interesting with this, uh, sex scene is we found that about 28% of boys and 28% of girls had sent a naked picture to another teen. And when I talk to folks about that, a lot of people get alarmed by that. I have to remind them, you know, m- more teens are having actual real sex. And so that is still <laughs> the, the important aspect of this.
3: Then the takeaway here might be for parents, if you find that your kid is sexting, that even if you know for a fact, and how could you know that, that they're not sexually active, that's a sign that they will be soon. And so you need to have those conversations about birth control, about safety, about consent, about drug and alcohol abuse. You need to have those conversations. The moment has been called. The question has been called. You need to have those convos now.
0: Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. I I think that is where the importance of sexting lies. It's a, in relationship to sexual behavior, whether currently happening or that it is a indicator that sex will happen soon. and And that's basically what we found with the initial study is that it teens who had sexted were about twice as likely to have a, a history of sexual behavior. So if you do find that your teen is sexting, there's a good chance that he or she is participating in sex or that he or she will over the next year based on on this study. Now, there's certainly a whole host of other factors that relate to sexual behavior in teenagers. So this is just one of many, but it is it's a pretty good indicator. And so if you find that your teen is is sexting then then that's a, certainly a good time to talk with them. Hopefully you're already talking to them. But well, that's what I was just uh, going to
3: say because you you said a moment ago that not all teens who are sexting are sexting. So we should just have these conversations with our kids whether they're sexting or not because teenagers absolutely. have sex.
0: Absolutely. Now I have a I have an 11 year old daughter, and I've had these conversations with her. And uh, you know, as a psychologist, my daughter probably is annoyed with all the conversations oh, I've had god. with her. But
3: pity the poor uh, children of sex advice columnists and yeah. sex researchers and <laughs> sex therapists and psychologists. When my you know when my kid was little, he got his first girlfriend. I was like, oh my god, we have to talk about birth control. And he's like, dad, I'm 12. <laughs> I was like, but I've seen the stats. I've seen the stats for pregnant 12 year old girls. So yeah, I can't. I, I, can't relax. I threatened my
0: daughter with uh, that. I'm going to go into her school and start telling all the kids not to sext as a, uh, whenever she acts up. So that's, that's my, uh, my leverage.
3: Is there any data out there about adult sexting?
0: There is. There's quite a bit out there, uh, especially as you get over 18 when you get into the emerging adults, young adults. And uh, there's been several studies that show over half of the young adults are sexting. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's where the the concern is necessarily I it, most people sexed adolescents and adults are in a consensual relationship the the fear with adolescence of course is that it could get distributed to a larger audience uh, there's some legal ramifications associated with it there's certainly some history of like psychosocial cases where someone gets bullied or teased does the, or there the are instances
3: can. where where young women particularly have been slut shamed because yeah they were sexed oh, you're absolutely and right and they've been bullied and have committed suicide.
0: Yeah. And I think there is that double standard that exists with sexting as well. Right. So when a guy sexed, it's, it's, you know, no big deal. He's just being a guy. But when a girl sexed, she has the, uh, you know, she's a whore or a slut or something mm-hmm. like that. So yeah, I, and I think it also comes down to, uh, the shape of our bodies in that when guys sexed oftentimes because their parts are lower than their faces, just their goods end up in the picture. Whereas when girls sex, it seems to be, it, it, I, I think the, the, their faces are more likely to be in the picture so they're more likely to be outed in that
3: picture because sense. their genitals are on their necks <laughs>
0: well their chest their anyway all che- oh, right all right we're not, not a <laughs>
3: general to gentle comparison here it's girls are sending uh, chest shots and boys are sending crotch shots
0: yeah and i and i actually I, I in preparation for this i watched one of your interviews where someone asked you a question about sexting and and i i agreed with you 100% where the you know, you know there is this this uh, The women's bodies I think in society are not considered theirs and so I, I think that there is that tendency to slut shame them more.
3: I, I think if we just let young people know that the vast and overwhelming majority of sexts that are sent every day are sent by not young adults or, or teenagers or adolescents but old fuckers, that they would be less likely to do it. You realize that your parents sexed.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think like anything else, if we were honest with teens, I think they'd be less likely to do it. I I think that that's one of our mistakes with uh, sexting is. Uh, and a colleague of mine, Elizabeth Englander, talks about this. She compares when we talk to kids and we tell them not to sex and we tell them that it's going to end up all over the internet and their lives are going to be ruined. They know that that's not true because most of their friends sex. They might sex, and none of that has happened. So what Dr. Englander has talked about is comparing it to his to the use of a seatbelt. So, you know, more than likely, if you don't use your seatbelt over the next month, you're going to get to all your uh, destinations perfectly fine. But there's a chance that you could get in a wreck and die because you don't have your seatbelt on. It's similar to sexting. I think we have to talk to kids about that, just as we have to talk to them about sex and drugs and alcohol and and be honest with them. And I think give them more credit than they usually get.
3: For people who want to read the study, uh, where can they find the, the published version of it?
0: It is uh it, you can they can find it online on the Pediatrics website which is the American Academy of Pediatrics with a, they'll have a link to their journal and uh it came out on uh, beginning of November.
3: Dr. Jeff Temple, licensed psychologist and associate professor at the University of Texas Medical Branch, thanks so much for jumping on the phone today.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me Dan. I really appreciate it.
5: Hi Dan. like A lot of your listeners just returning from Thanksgiving break in my hometown. I got a question that probably some other people have, and I wish that nobody had. Um, one of my friends from church, from growing up with, like middle school, I think maybe even elementary school, high school, college, um, and we've fallen out of touch. In recent years, and I just, she's one of those friends that I just saw on Facebook, um, I found out that she's recently fled an abusive marriage, um, and I'm in shock, and nobody knew, and her mom didn't even know. I'm wondering if it's appropriate to send her some kind of, like, I'd like, my inclination is to reach out to her to say, you know, we're so sorry, like, it'll be okay. Like, anything I could think of to say to her sounds so trite and I've never been through anything like this before. Should I reach out to someone who's fled an abusive relationship? What should I say? I Just like any words I can think of sounds sort of impotent and too little, too late. Like obviously she needed support before um, and now I'm kind of like coming in after the fact and like I said, we haven't really been in touch Like to the point that even when she originally got married I mean I didn't I don't even think I sent her a note about that. So is it just, like, me assuaging my conscience to crawl out of the woodwork and tell her I'm sorry and we're there for her. I just, I don't know, my inclination is to send her some, like, clumsy, we're sorry message, but I just don't want to make it worse if she doesn't want to think about this and wants, like, few people to know about it. um, If you have any ideas um, on how I can be a supportive friend or that out, um, I'd like to know it. You always have the answer. Thanks.
3: Send your friend a note and just say, I hear you're getting a divorce. We fell out of touch years ago. If you just need a friendly ear, I'm here. Period. The end. You don't have to say, oh, I hear you've been abused. I hear it was an abusive marriage. Sucks for you. Terrible. I feel good. I feel bad. You don't have to say any of that. You just have to reach out and say, sorry, we fell out of touch. Happy to chat if you ever need somebody to talk to. Period. The end. And don't be too hard on yourself for not knowing that she was trapped in an abusive marriage. Uh, her mother didn't even know that she was in an abusive marriage. One of the tools abusers use to get away with abusing their victims is that they isolate them. And the fact that this woman was isolated from her own parents, uh, the fact that perhaps she was isolated, not just from you, but other friends as well over the years is evidence that she was in an abusive relationship and you can't fault yourself trying to avoid using a different expression there. You can't fault yourself for that don't err on the side of saying nothing though. People sometimes when they don't know what to say, say nothing. And that's worse than even saying a clumsy thing or the wrong thing. When somebody dies, when somebody loses a child, when somebody – when a marriage ends, when some tragedy happens, it helps to hear from people. And people will complain about people who say the wrong thing and then that makes people feel like they should say nothing because they don't want to risk saying the wrong thing. But saying nothing is to also say the wrong thing. People will complain about the people – not complain about people. People will be hurt by the people they didn't hear from either. So say something and you might say the wrong thing. But say nothing and you've definitely said the wrong thing. Send her a note here for you. Sorry you fell out of touch. Give me a call. That's all you got to say.
5: Hi, Dan. Um, I have a question. I've been dating a man for about six months now. He's 31. I'm 26. And it's going really well. Uh, we get along really well. We have the same sense of humor. We have a good time. When we're together. Um, the only problem is that he likes to jerk off a lot. Like on his days off, he will probably get off four or five times a day. And when I'm there at his house, sometimes, you know, like I'll go to the bathroom or I'll take a shower, go to the store or something. And I come back and he'll tell me that he would gotten off. And so it wouldn't be a problem if, you know, he'd still be up for doing things with me, you know, after getting off. But it seems like a lot of times, you know, he's too tired or. He's just not in the mood, but he still you know will watch porn and service himself. I guess I don't know how to approach this um if I should even be upset about it. You know we both have pretty high sex drives, so I don't know if it's something that I should be upset about or if I should just accept it for what it is. I mean, we still have sex probably three or four times a week, so it's not like we never have sex. It's just, I would rather, you know, be doing it with him than have him having solo rounds. He says that it's easier. He doesn't have to worry about getting me off um, and that it's just, you know, kind of a habit sometimes and something to do. So is this a problem or do you think it's something that it's just a price of admission?
3: You should break up with this guy, not because he jacks off six times a day. You're clearly having plenty of sex three or four times a week at six months. That's not bad. That's not bad at two months. It's not bad at 10 years. But the fact that he needs to tell you about it, the fact that he feels compelled when you run out to get a loaf of bread or a gallon of milk, when you walk back in the door to say, just got off, that's creepy. That's weird. It's inconsiderate and aggressive in this way that I would just find very discomforting and disconcerting. Someone who would announce that to you when you walk back in the house is probably someone who smeared his semen all over your toothbrush. I just, there's something, it's just creepy. It's just creepy. He's not just being blase and sex positive and open with you. He's prodding you in this way. He's poking you in a way. He's using this fact that he jacked off in your absence to goad you and if he's sometimes too tired to have sex with you when you're with him and hanging out at the house and yet he's telling you six times that day that he jacked off in your momentary absence when you went to the store, or you took a shower. There's a subtle kind of cruelty there. It's not just inconsiderate. It's cruel. It's not viciously cruel. It's subtly cruel. And I don't think that someone who has that kind of issue, that kind of problem – where they just slip a little dig in like that, that that will be limited to just that arena. That this will, these subtle little cruel digs will be compartmentalized. It'll only ever be about when and where he jacks off. That he'll, he feels compelled to share this with you, knowing, hopefully you've shared this with at this point, knowing it kind of leaves you feeling uncomfortable and maybe even hurt. And yet he feels compelled to keep doing it, to keep poking that, pressing that button. It's not going to be limited to just that. That that will play out in other areas of the relationship. That kind of subtle cruelty, invalidation, inconsideration. And you don't want to be around for that. You don't want to be around when that ramps up. You don't want to be around when you start detecting the other parts of the relationship, the other aspects of his character, the other moments in the day where he will find the time, to slip in the subtle undermining dig. Get the fuck out. It's only been six months. You're only 26. Get the fuck out.
1: Hey, Dan, I'm a 25 year old gay guy from New York city who has recently over the past few months come to embrace my attraction to trans guys. And I'm having trouble with one thing, how to actually find a trans guy to date slash fuck. I didn't think it would be so hard, but I haven't been able to make it happen yet. I'm not an unattractive guy, I'm handsome, physically fit, funny, I have an interesting life and career, and I never have a problem finding guys to date. In order to find the trans man of my dreams, I've been using Scruff and Grindr and I've also posted Matt on Craigslist, but the only guys that come my way are either disgusting or they're very cute, but then eventually seem to either be afraid of meeting up or they seem like they're catfishing me and then they like kind of disappear. The only other option I can think of is that Buck Angel dating site or other sites like it, but I just don't have the money to shell out $40 a month or something like that. Perhaps I'm spoiled as a 21st century gay guy who can find cock, you know, like it's ordering a pizza. But I live in New York City, and I didn't think it would be so hard to find some pussy to eat. I've been joking that this whole hunt might just turn me straight. And also, if you just send such a call that a trans guy has a pussy, help me.
3: You might want to get off the gay dating app. Sometimes trans guys will go on, trans gay guys will go into the gay dating apps, will go into Grinder and Scruff and Recon other places, and get chased away. You know there'll be gay guys there who'll blow up at them, who'll say insanely transphobic things to them. They don't feel that a lot of trans gay guys don't feel like those gay dating apps are very welcoming or accepting places for them to find partners. You might want to shell out the forty bucks to get on Buck Angel's trans dating site. You might want to go to a more mainstream place like OkCupid. Okay where which I know a lot of trans people use and feel safe using and be open about being a gay dude. Who's into trans men or open to trans men and see what comes your way. There's no, it's not like there's a great big box full of trans guys on the lower east side that I can direct you to. You can just open it up and there they are. Trans guys are a tiny percentage of the male population. Trans gay guys are a smaller percentage of even that small percentage And it just might be a while before you run across one that you are attracted to and who is attracted to you. Uh, but then when that happens, good for you and good that you're open to dating trans guys. And we hear from some trans guys on the show every once in a while who are in despair, who think that no gay guy could possibly ever be attracted to a trans guy. And here you are proving them wrong. And I challenge them all to go out and find you.
1: Hi, Uh, I'm calling from kind of central Canada. And I considered myself uh, fairly educated when it comes to sexual identity. But recently, a past friend of mine emailed me out of nowhere and told me that he was gender fluid. Uh, We had been friends in university 10 years ago. Haven't talked since then. Uh, He found me. And I was confused for two reasons. One, I have no idea really what gender fluid is. I think I've never heard it before. I listened to your podcast and maybe I missed it. I don't know. And uh, two, I'm a little curious why he might reach out and uh, contact me and let me know.
3: I guess I've been remiss in my duties as a sex podcaster that you've been listening to the show and you're not familiar with the term gender fluid. So just to bring you and everyone else listening up to date, I'm going to read uh, the gender queer page, just the preamble from Wikipedia. Genderqueer GQ, alternatively non-binary, is a catch-all category for gender identities other than man and woman, thus outside the gender binary and cisnormativity. normativity Genderqueer people may identify as one or more of the following. Having an overlap of or indefinite lines between gender identity and sexual and romantic orientation, two or more genders, bigender, trigender, pangender, without a gender, non-gender, genderless, agender, neutroids, moving between genders or with a fluctuating gender identity, gender fluid, third gender or other gendered includes those who do not place a name to their gender. So there you go. All up to speed now. Hope you feel better. Why would someone that you haven't heard from for t- for years, for decades, since college, call you out of the blue to let you know that they are now identifying as gender fluid? Because they're a very special snowflake and they require your attention.
5: Hi, Dan. I Read the Rolling Stone article about the University of Virginia a week or so ago about the um, fraternity scandals on campus. It brought up some questions for me that I'm curious of your viewpoint. I also brought back some memories for me because I went to a big ten school with a very strong Greek presence on campus. In my sophomore year, I dated someone in a fraternity who was pretty horrible, um, very manipulative, always. You know, wanted to force me to do things, and of course, his fraternity brothers thought it was hilarious and very much egged him on. And so, I am just curious do you think that fraternities um, attract shitty people, or do fraternities make people become shitty? I'm just, you know, reading about all the numbers in the news, it's very clear that fraternities are a place, you know, where state rape happens and gang rape rape happens. And you know, why is this? I understand that it does happen, but I'm curious to know what your opinion is as to why.
3: So the question is, do fraternities attract shitty men or does joining a fraternity make a man shitty? And I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is that, you know, we, I went to the school with the biggest Greek system in the country, university of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana biggest Greeks, frats, frats out the ass. And it did seem just from observation at the time that shitty people were in frats and frats attracted shitty people and shitty people pledged. That said, I knew some great guys who were in frats. The problem though is community norms and small community norms. And it's not – community norms aren't just like a city's norms or a state's norms or a nation's norms. There can be small insular communities that have their own norms and you put a decent person in a small community – with shitty norms and you can flip that person. That person can adopt those norms and become a shitty person. So the fact that frats tended to attract shitty people, in my experience at the University of Illinois, also attracted some decent people who then found themselves surrounded by shitty people whose opinions they were worried about, who were their brothers, who, whose approval they sought. And that, those forces, that pull, that undertow of a group of primarily shitty people drop in a non shitty person, and that sh- non shitty person can be sucked towards shittiness is at play, I think, in frats. So, in answer to your question, do frats attract shitty men or do frats make shitty men? The answer is yes, 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 yes.
5: Hi, Dan. I have a comment for the woman in episode 423 who was getting bacterial vaginosis. I would recommend to her to stop using soap of any kind on her vagina. If she's using any, water is all you need. Also, change out of wet underwear or wet clothes as soon as possible because bacteria likes dampness. And then it's always good after a sex marathon to just rinse everything off. Just using like a towel wet with water or getting a little squirty bottle and using it over the toilet can help get rid of any of the bad stuff that's hanging out after sex. There are some products, chlorophyll, in which you can actually insert directly into your vagina. So in other words, we don't just have to pray for the good bacteria. We can give our vagina the good bacteria. Every time that you finish the act of having sex, if you would just go pee afterward and then possibly take a just like a quick shower to rinse, you will greatly reduce your chances of um, developing bacteria vaginosis. Really make sure that your sexual partner has clean fingers. Another thing is definitely don't cross-contaminate. Um, if you're going to be having any kind of like anal involvement, don't put that same finger or toy back in your pussy. It does not make for a happy vagina. I have to say there is a magic cure for beauty. All you have to do is take Borax, put it inside
6: capsules, and then just put it up in your vagina.
1: For years, uh, I seem to give every woman I was with bacterial vaginosis. I'm very big on going down. And I really think that it was the bacteria in my mouth that was giving these women uh, bacterial vaginosis. So uh, soon after I met my current wife, I started uh, using mouthwash before every time before we'd get together. And she has not had an infection in seven years.
3: And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a call. 206-201-2720. The Savage Lovecast can be given as a gift. You can subscribe to the Magnum Edition at www.savagelovecast.com where you will find the show. The Magnum Edition of the show has twice as many calls, twice as many what you got, twice as many guests, twice as many questions and answers, and no Ad. So, if you want an ad free version, you can subscribe to the Magnum and you can gift a subscription to the Magnum to someone else who you think needs to be listed. Subscriptions are 5 bucks for a month, $19.99 for six months, or $35.99 for a year, and you get access to not just this week's show, but all the Savage Lovecast Magnums throughout history. Go to savagelovecast.com for information about subscribing or gifting. Follow me on Twitter at fakedansavage follow Dr. Jeff Temple on Twitter at Dr. Jeff, J-E-F-F Temple. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian of Gender Solid and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy Gender Solid. We will all be back at you next week with our installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having me.